Hey there, podcast listeners. Welcome to Engendered, the show that features stories that explore the systems, practices, and policies that enable gender-based violence and oppression and the solutions to end it. Engendered is sponsored by Can Do It, spelled K-A-N-D-U-I-T, and I'm your host, Terry Yuan. Welcome to the second episode of Engendered Reflections, where we look back on our series of family court episodes with a guest. My friend Michael is here with us today to join in that conversation. Currently, Michael leads a workforce development program at a New York City community-based organization. He trains youth and young adults in building job skills and assists them with finding and retaining long-term employment. Michael and I used to work together serving vulnerable and economically disadvantaged populations in New York City, and we share that common lens of understanding of how gender and intimate partner violence serve as barriers to achieving education and or professional success. So welcome, Michael. Hi, Terry. So this is our second episode of Reflections, looking back today on episodes 7, 9, 10, and 11 the episodes where we discussed family court issues and challenges, in particular custody issues, as well as issues of how domestic violence survivors um, and their allegations are viewed in court by the decision makers. So in episode seven, we spoke with Nancy S. Erickson on court-appointed evaluators and mental health assessments. Do you remember that episode? Yes, of course. So <laughs> it's been so long ago. So <laughs> that's that's fine. So to start off, I would say that there's a lot that I did not know before, especially when it comes to family court and court issues, since uh, I'm not court involved in in any type of way. So there's a lot of new terms that I I've I've learned during this time. So one of the things that stood out to me from the very beginning was how fathers are favored over mothers in many of the cases. See, it, typically, I would think that mothers, well, before this, I, I, I figured out that mothers would probably get the, the child most of the time because it would just make sense. Usually they're the ones who are the primary caregivers or this is just like the thought or the bias that I have. And I didn't know until until I learned it through Nancy mentioning that, that it's actually not the case. Um, yeah, and I think that that myth is so pervasive because it typically is true and maybe less so because of equal parenting laws um, when it comes to cases that settle out of court. Right. So those are the cases that you hear about where you know, your friend or family friend is getting a divorce and, you know, they're not going to trial and they're coming to some sort of agreement on their own. But the cases that I, that Nancy and the other guests on the family court series are addressing are really cases where there is domestic violence allegations. Right. Um, and and so those are the cases where a very small proportion of cases end up in court, right. in trial. Um, and I don't want to say what the number is, but I think it's around five to ten percent of cases end up in trial out oh, of okay. all divorces and custody cases. Oh, so within that percentage, we see a majority these. of cases, so more than fifty percent. And I again, I'll have the links for that. I think it was in the links that I shared with 
Nancy's episode on the Leadership Council website. Right. But then the majority of those cases that go to trial have allegations of some sort of abuse, whether it's domestic violence towards the uh, partner, one of the, the parents, or abuse towards the children. And it could be physical abuse or sexual abuse towards the children. And so of those cases, Nancy was saying, then the majority, when those allegations are made, actually favor the father. Oh, I see. Yes. So that, yeah. that, that, that makes sense. And I, I guess all throughout these episodes, that's what we're referring to, this, this 5 to 10%, possibly, if, if we uh, take a look at the links. Right. So, And I also want to just point out that when I say father, it's because in the majority of those cases, the father is the abuser. Right. Um, but it's not because, you know, he's the father. And so as Nancy said, in those cases, typically it's the woman who's um, filing um, papers that are alleging abuse. And then in return, most likely the father, the abuser, then retaliates by making accusations that the abuse allegations are untrue. Right. So, yes, yeah, so this is what we're referencing. Another thing that I found pretty interesting was the fact that high income and low income, the abuse seems to be pretty much the same. The only difference probably between the high income and low income is that because of the possible educational difference, the abuser may know how to inflict damage to the survivor in, in a much more covert kind of way. So they, they do get abused and um, they, it's much more difficult to prove. Yeah, I think that's that's something that is important to remind our listeners, which is that, you know, there is a gender pay gap. There is economic injustice right now right. with regard to gender. And because it's ubiquitous, you know, in our society and it's not, there's no law to enact to remedy that pay gap, we have differences that when they're played out in in the court system, they get repeated and in some cases exacerbated. And so there's a case, I, I know I, I speak about this at a future episode but that I just recorded, but there's a case that my friend told me, someone that she knows who, you know, very, very wealthy, like 1% family. Right. The, and, and there are many um, where this happens and it's so much so that it's a pattern that can be predicted. You know, so... Both sides are, the couple is very wealthy. You know, there's abuse allegations. The court doesn't believe it. They, they give joint custody, even though at least in New York State, you're supposed to take abuse allegations into account. And right. technically, you're not supposed to give joint custody when there are abuse allegations. Of course, of course not. Um, but, but it was divided so that the father, who was the abuser, abuser got the education part for joint legal custody and the mother got healthcare, you know, and I forgot who got the religion, but because the father, the abuser had education, right. he was able to enroll their son. They had one, one child only okay. their son in boarding school out of state. And so, so then he was, he was yeah, he was able to take him out. And, and because he has a legal right to do so as part of his quote unquote educational decision making that trumped the quote unquote time that the child spent with the other parent. Oh, and so that's often used as a way to sort of 
you know, control the other parent and control the relationship and limit the relationship that the other protective parent um, has, you know, over the child. And then protective parent, just as a reminder to our listeners, mm-hmm. is a term that dis- did I describe it at the beginning of this? I don't believe so. Uh, so a protective parent is a is a term that's used mainly by advocates to some extent, policymakers um, and definitely survivors of domestic violence to describe um, individuals who are trying to engage in the legal system or in some uh, aspect of our systems to protect their child or themselves from abuse. And very often they're not believed. And very often because they make these allegations, they speak out, they're retaliated against and their time with their child either becomes restricted or eliminated uh, in some way. Um, And so that's just, you know, to reiterate, yes, financial abuse happens all the time. And, you know, regardless of income level, regardless of of, um, class. Right. Well, hopefully, one of the things that Nancy mentioned was about the custody evaluations, how the custody evaluators are not educated in domestic violence, so maybe they aren't able to see these types of abuses and and and, and ways that a, a person could be financially abused. So I think it's great that you're able to get some of these guests to bring this to light. Yeah, and then actually, I think what what's for me was the biggest takeaway from speaking with Nancy is that there's so little oversight over some of these players in the system, such as the court-appointed custody evaluator and the kinds of assessments they may offer. You know, she, she shared how mental health evaluations came about initially decades ago because it was considered a cause for domestic violence and or potentially some of the responses that the survivor um, had in response to the violence. So it's coexistent um, and seen as a cause, and that's how custody evaluators historically came into the picture. But because there's no accountability, because if a custody evaluator isn't qualified and makes determinations that end up being harmful to the survivor and her children, there and there's nothing you can do about it. You know, uh, um, even if you have money, there's not a lot of chance based on, you know, later on when we, when we talk to, uh, talk about Joan, right. you know, there's not a lot of chance that you're, you're, you're going to have to overturn those trial court decisions, then I think it really is important, as she said, to consider what role they have at all in the, in the court system. And Nancy's opinion is we should get rid of them altogether if there's no accountability and just let the trial judge look at the facts and look at the decision uh, and make a decision from the facts and hear the, the, the testimony from the witnesses. And then they can bring in experts on specific issues. They can bring in experts on domestic violence or experts on sex, child sexual abuse or experts on mental health issues rather than have a custody evaluator make a decision that is ill-informed. Right. I mean, is there not another solution to make sure that you have custody evaluators that are informed in domestic violence and issues? Or would it make more sense to have different experts in different fields of the case where that would make it more informed so the judge could make better decision? That's Well, I guess, you know, aspirationally, it'd be great if 
working with what we have now if they could be trained. But the problem is if there's nothing that can hold them accountable to that training, right. you know, like they're not going to be at risk at losing their license. You know, they're not going to be at risk at getting fined. And the governing bodies, um, the oversight entities tend to, as Nancy said, not look at these cases when there are complaints because they think that if, especially if there's an ongoing trial, right? they think that it's, it's almost biased to begin with, you know, and that the accusation is, is not based on facts, you know? Right. And so, so they don't, if they don't, there's no place or no opportunity to hold them accountable to what they should do. And it's, le- le- it's, it's not likely, likely that they're going to do what they should do right. on their own. Right, which would make sense. Okay, and actually later on, and I believe Kathleen does talk about the players specifically in, in, in this. Um, and and she, she, she'll talk more about that. And we're going to get to that, I'm sure. The last thing uh, in episode seven that I, that I thought of was when we brought the mental illness. So one of the things that she said was before people th- thought, well, something must be wrong with the woman for being in this abusive relationship. Why didn't she get out? It must be a mental illness on her. So we realized that that's not the case. So instead of putting the blame on her, let's, let's what we, we blame a mental illness on the abuser. Maybe it's the abuser who has mental illness that causes this violence. But again, it's not, it's, it's not that simple. Which kind of remind me about school shootings, right? Um, which a lot of people bring up, oh, well, it's mental illness. It's mental illness that's causing this. But in the grand scheme of things, other countries also uh, don't have these uh, the same type of violence that we have over here. And while we're blaming it on mental illness, it's not like the United States has a higher rate of mental illness than Japan, for example, right? Yet at the same time, instead of blaming the root causes, we blame mental illness. So I think that's uh, that was something interesting that happens over here in these abuse cases as well. Yeah, and speaking of root causes, um, in our conversation with Phyllis B. Frank, in my conversation with Phyllis B. Frank, which was in episode three, I believe, mm-hmm. um, she talked about the New York Batter Intervention Program, the New York model for batter intervention programs. Right. And Phyllis made it clear for our listeners, if, if any of you listeners haven't heard of that episode, please, it's very enlightening. Um, Phyllis basically makes it clear that really it's definitely not mental illness and it's also not anger management because anger management is an issue that people have that is not towards their romantic partner. And if you, if you can manage your anger with everybody else other than with your partner, then it's a choice. And anger management is something that is basically like an executive management you know, functioning um, deficit, so to speak, that is um, not selective and you can't control. So if you right. can control it, it's a choice. And it's a choice that's rooted in a mindset of power and control of, right. you know, je- generally male supremacy, but also if you happen to be white, then white male supremacy. And it's really the mindset and understanding the mindset and how our society creates that mindset and and reproduces it. it. Yeah. And our attitudes and our behaviors and our opinions that um, really contribute 
to abusive behaviors and coercive behaviors. Absolutely. Right. So then uh, we went to the next episode, episode nine, where Joan Meyer uh, explains about uh, domestic violence and the legal um, uh, empowerment and appeals project. Um, Yeah. So DV Leap. DV Leap. Yes. That was also uh, an enlightening episode. Um, And what was it about DV Leap that struck you? The first thing, and, and the work that rather that work, that Joan Myers does that struck you, right? Another thing that I learned through Joan Myers is that a lot of the work is done in appeals court, in appellate court, and again, this is one of the things that I didn't know where how the importance of uh, of the appeals process is, is in a lot of these cases. So, well, you mean that DV Joan Meyer at DV Leap, their work primarily addressed well, only addresses advocacy for survivors in appellate court. Right. But not that there's only advocacy in appellate court, you're saying? No, no, no. Oh, okay, okay. No, no, no. Yeah, yeah, I'm yeah. sure there's Just to advocacy. make sure that no. clarification. For right, listeners. right, no. But I'm saying the importance of oh, appellate okay. court is, is something that I wasn't aware of. Uh-huh. I, I'm, not, I'm not saying that that's the only thing that's important, uh, but yeah, absolutely, yes. So um, that's something that, that was uh, relatively new to me. And so one of the things that I, I thought of is people that aren't dealing with court cases, it's still important to learn this because it is relevant, I believe, in um, other aspects of our lives. One of the things that struck me was uh, when she was talking about false stereotypes that uh, to deny true abuse, about the mislabeling and the misuse of certain terms that are used in court to make certain decisions. So she basically was talking about the term PAS, which stands for Parental Alienation Syndrome, which is, I believe, later on, Kathleen in episode 11 11 says, yeah, that Kathleen Russell of Center for Judicial Excellence basically references it as junk science. And part of the reason is because it's not been identified as quote-unquote a syndrome in the DSM-5, which is the Diagnostic Statistical Manual for Clinical Diagnoses. Right, right. So one of the things that I that this reminded me of is there is a another podcast that I listen to where um, this gentleman by the name of Chris Fabricant, he's a lawyer for the Innocence Project, he mentioned that what the work is and that they, what he's doing is trying to help people who have been convicted wrongfully of crimes by proving some of these things that uh, they were accused of falsely. Uh, For example, things like eyewitness testimony. So eyewitness testimony isn't as as helpful as you might think because uh, one of the things that they mentioned is the fact that when a witness is being asked a question, even if they just saw it in person, the way the question is asked could possibly influence what it is that their answer is going to be. So for example, if there's a car crash, if you ask the question, how fast do you think the car was going when it slammed into the other car? So as opposed to saying, how fast was it when the car tapped the other car? So you, the, the people in general tend to over-exaggerate the speed of the car if you're using certain terms in, in language. So, so like... So like the, the signals, signaling right. and cues. Signaling and cues, uh-huh. right. So eyewitness testimony isn't as reliable as you might think. Same thing with uh, false confessions, how people uh, are likely to confess to crimes that they didn't commit. Some of these people have confessed and later it was found out that through DNA evidence that uh, they were completely innocent of, of, of it. 
But more, even more shocking was the actual forensic testimony that uh, a lot of prosecutors bring into the courtroom. And things like shoe mark and bite mark analysis are really forms of forensic analysis that aren't backed up by empirical evidence. And it seems like a lot of the prosecutors, they come up with this and they've used it in a case before. So they, they feel like, oh, well, we're an expert in this field because this is, this is what happened and this, this, is, this is what happened in the cases before and we're just using it again. But it's not really backed up by empirical evidence. And so one of the, that's, that's one of the things that he does. He just brings us to light. And I think by educating the players in domestic uh, violence cases would be just as effective as this, hopefully. But again, this is a slow process and it's still going on now. The Innocence Project is uh, still going on, hopefully exonerating people who have been accused of crimes that they definitely didn't commit. So... Yeah. yeah, yeah. And I'm glad you brought up the Innocence Project because, um, by the way, what what podcast was that that you heard that on? Adam Conover's Adam Ruins Everything podcast. Okay. So I was in my car um, when I caught uh, part of an episode on NPR um, called Innocence Deniers. And I believe, if I recall correctly, there was a male that was part of the Innocence Project that was interviewed. And the subject that I recall was on Kim Worthy, who is a DA in, um, gosh, in Wayne County, I believe, Wayne County, Michigan. And she's an African-American woman who is maybe, you may have heard of her for being famous for really going after rape kits and making sure that you know, they're processed. Right. Um, so she's one of an ad, the advocates, very prominent advocates in that particular uh, area. Mm-hmm. However, with regard to this one case, um, there was a 14-year-old boy who was convicted of multiple murders. His name was Devante Sanford. And within, I can't remember, within weeks of him being either prosecuted or, or convicted, it turned out that, first of all, there were lots of problems with his prosecution. There mm-hmm. were questions around the way the police interrogated him, how they collected evidence, you know, that there's, if I recall, there was like coercion, et cetera. Right. And so very soon after, the actual killer who murdered the people that Devante Sanford was accused was of, accused of mm-hmm. confessed. And what happened was Kim Worthy um, spent, I believe, years trying to deny that Devante Sanford should be exonerated and released. Um, so even even though he the the actual killer already confessed and and, and was was he prosecuted? Yes, and he was prosecuted. Well, what I recall, and and I'm going to make sure that we have links to this is that the actual killer, uh, his name is, I just looked it up, Vincent Smothers. Mm -hmm. He confessed to multiple murders, including the ones that Devante Sanford was Was accused of of and in jail for. But then Kim Worthy only chose to prosecute him for some of those murders, but not the ones that Devante Sanford was already in jail for. 
So he chose. So she chose to ignore the other ones instead of releasing him. And so, anyway, long story short, um, what um, the journalist who was covering this this um, particular case was saying is that you know this is there was pe- people who study it. Prosecutors across the country have found that regardless of race, regardless of gender, regardless of any kind of personality trait or background demographic, you know, difference amongst the prosecutors, that there was a uniform, almost tunnel vision reaction to refusing to admit that they were wrong in convictions. And the journalist was saying that this is basically a a form of confirmation bias, um, where you, even when you look at the new evidence and it's completely inconsistent with, you know, with what you believe is to be true, you just discard it. And in, in some, in many ways, right? Like we, I hate to bring this up again, but it's kind of like what's happening with the the people who are supporting our president, right? right? So no matter how much comes out to, to to prove that there's some wrongdoing on his part or other people who work for him's part, there's some explanation, and there's some there's continually some pivot. Right now, I, Chris Favreconte also mentions that that. What he stated, though, is that he doesn't necessarily believe that they are doing it on purpose, but they it, it's hard for them to imagine. So, so they'll, they'll create this evidence to sort of to sort of, like you said, tunnel vision to, to, to block out the things that don't fit into their narrative and only focus on the things that would make sense to them because it becomes part of their identity. Mm-hmm. So by deny, by by admitting to this is 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 challenging their own identity and it's very very difficult to for for, for anybody to be challenged I believe with their own identity but for them it's 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 particularly dangerous because it is harming people um, that are innocent. So so their tribal identity, their access to um, a network of support probably, but also I think I've also heard people who, who have with regard to the family court issues and, you know, to our larger political environment, they've also kind of, um, used the analogy from a clinical perspective that it's too, just, you know, all of us living under a white male supremacist culture, mm-hmm. we are all in some ways harmed by it. We just don't know to what extent, and we are harmed to different extents depending on our history and you know to whatever extent. Yeah, we are vulnerable, right. right? So when people are inflexible, they are doing so partly as a self-preservationist right. kind of way because their brain just you know or their, their psyche can't accept right. accept. It's too traumatic for them to to, to experience anything. Uh, to to admit to this, so which which I, I while I understand it, and uh, it's just just hopefully with enough education, or hopefully we um, do something to 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 change. Yeah, and I think you know that's actually um, it's a it's a great segue to us talking about um, the results that Joan Myers. You know, Professor Meyer spoke about in 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 her study. So she right. did this um, initially a four year study, mm-hmm. um, and then most recently in our conversation, she addressed a ten year study where 
They looked at family court results across the country, empirical study of family court outcomes in cases involving parental, quote unquote, parental alienation, child abuse. And what they found was that to the extent that there was any kind of allegation of abuse, whether it was domestic violence towards one of the adults or child abuse or child sexual abuse, and the abuser made an allegation of, quote unquote, parental alienation as a defense or as an attack, Mm -hmm. that the likely outcome was that the original allegation of abuse was not going to be believed and that the child was going to be removed from the protective parent and placed to live with the abuser. Right. That that is some scary statistics that uh, that I found shocking. I definitely thought that uh, it was strange how um, they, when it comes to when it when it gets flipped over, right, um, and it, the uh, the roles are reversed. Um, it's much more likely that the man will be in favor of of of, of that case. So. Um, so it's taken seriously. So one of the things that I remember is that alienation is taken seriously when the mother does it. And when it comes to men, it's 50-50. So a lot of the statistics that you mentioned are, are, are really shocking and really eye-opening. Yeah, and, and I think that also speaks to kind of the general gender bias that permeates, you know, all of our culture where, you know, in any kind of accusation of, gender violence, you know, whether it's um, street harassment, you know, or um, non-consexual sex or rape, you know, or, uh, and by non-consensual, let me remove, (laughs) let me not say that. So, sorry, (laughs) rape. (laughs) I think that, you know, there's still this almost instinctive response, maybe even on both sides, you know, by men and women, to disbelieve, right? To victim blame right. and to minimize and um, and to shift the responsibility away from the person who's committing you know, the harm to the person who's being harmed. And so if this is happening across you know, all areas of our society, in the public realm, in the private realm, you know, private realm too, right. including in the workplace, right? That's With true. workplace harassment, mm-hmm. then... How do we expect that these patterns don't get replicated in family court? Of course they will be. Of course, yeah. These these uh, these stereotypes that people continue to believe, and um, it's it, it's it's a very unfortunate thing. Another thing that I thought of when uh, when I was listening to this uh, particular episode was stereotypes. So the stereotype that women make up abuse when actually the abuse is being is true most of the time. That kind of reminded me of the whole immigration issue where the stereotype is that immigrants, most immigrants are criminals. And and, and, and we know statistically and it's not true. And we know statistically true. it's not true. But now this is, it's the same way with, with, with these cases. Statistically, it's not true that the women just make up abuse. But a lot of uh, people, in, in, according to um, John Meyer, this is what the judges base their decisions on. Yeah, and, and policy isn't driven by facts these days. It's driven by... Bias, bias and and you know whatever the whoever is in power however they tend to benefit from whatever policy decision they're make, making which tends to be a decision it seems that um, lines their pockets that's true but 
then that wouldn't have been possible without the support of the people who who have this bigotry and this 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 ingrained racism that's just so powerful that that just supports these type of people and it's just they're yeah. very loud. Yeah, I mean just before we started our conversation tonight, I saw um maybe I should look it up, but it it doesn't matter. I <laughs> I saw a a quote that said that 14% of Trump supporters would not support Trump if the allegations of Russian meddling in our elections in November of 2016 are true, which means that 86% still support him, even though Russian meddling is proven to be true. Which brings us back to the whole identity, right? Like this, this is something that they believe in. The core identity is then going to be challenged if, if they see this and they believe it. I mean, it's not just the whole Russia thing. It's the same thing with the um, allegations of, of, of his sexual assault, right? Uh, they women, there's many women supporters of Trump that will continuously support him, regardless of how many ever, however many allegations, um, women accuse him of sexual, um, misconduct. But, you know, remember when we went to see, um, Secret Science Club and Professor John Freeman from Mm -hmm. New York University, who is, um, a professor of psychology and neuroscience, he he studies social cognitive and neuroscience and has a lab where he created this software called the mouse tracker right right, right. and if i can sort of describe the mouse tracker uh, basically you have a physical mouse from a computer and you're looking at a computer screen and there's usually a picture at the bottom center of the screen and at the upper left and at the upper right corner of the screen, there's a, there are two words that are usually contrasting. And so what the mouse tracker does is you start the mouse at the center. bottom center where the picture is, and you look at the picture. Let's say, you know, it's a picture of a man, and the word is man and woman on the upper left and upper right. And then you have to take your mouse and move it towards the word that you match that picture to. And so the software tracks the speed at which you move your mouse, um, meaning your, you know, how quickly you decide um, and match your um, trajectory, the angle, um, the um, anything else, do you remember? So speed, uh, trajectory, the angle, and and... I'm sure there's some other elements. There's probably more, but, but either but, way. But yeah, and then basically you could see from, from the mouse tracker what the level of implicit bias is. You right. know, you could measure whether one is more or less. And so what happened was, since we're talking about this, there was a very relevant study on gender that John Freeman shared with us where female political candidates, this was done at Dartmouth University, researchers at Dartmouth, found that female political candidates with quote-unquote more feminine facial features Mm -hmm. are more likely to win races for political office than women with more quote-unquote masculine characteristics. So they had a picture of two women. This was, you know, in elections, not recent elections, so none of the people who were, were, you know, in the- The 2016 election. Yeah, yeah. So they weren't familiar to to the people who were um, in the study. And- 
And so they they showed these pictures and the, the you know there'd be two politicians and or multiple politicians' faces would show up and they would have different attributes. And the ones that had more makeup, that looked traditionally more feminine, longer hair, had a smile and looked quote unquote warmer, more of a caretaker, all of these sort of traditional traits that are considered quote unquote feminine, those people- Were seen more favorable to the person that was clicking based on the the tracking of the angle. So they would be more likely to move their mouse more quickly, more directly to the more female uh, female appearing um, choice. Yeah, and, and in fact, the, the software was predictive of who won the races. And you could tell very quickly, as, you know, with, you know, as soon as the mouse was moved, you could predict with high degree of accuracy who was gonna win. Right. And so that really, I think, just illustrates gender bias you know, it's just so ingrained into our society and into everybody. Basically, all uh, the rad, the typical person would probably be affected by it. And I believe me and and maybe you, the listener, is probably affected by these gender biases. Um, so it's a very good article to look it up. You should definitely yeah, do that. yeah. And and then um, then we spoke. In uh, episode 10, 10 yep. with Barry Goldstein. Right. Was that episode 10? Yes, yes, that was episode 10, Barry um, Goldstein. And Barry, um, basically, he talked about gender bias in family courts. He gave us you know, brief historical overview. What I found interesting is that all the well, the four people that we're going over today, they seemed in agreement. They they each one supported the other one. So uh, although they're in different fields, they all seem to back each other up with the work that they're doing. So Barry, he he uh, he mentioned uh, the couple of projects that he's um, involved in, including the ACE, the medical research stating that uh, child abuse is harmful. Because living with fear leads to stress and it leads to poor health. So it's something that's 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 very that, that affects us. Not just it, it, there's a huge cost to 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 domestic violence, and it's not just the actual abuse. It's the stress. It's the medical cost that that we incur as a result. So that's one of the reasons why it's extremely important for us to look at this as an issue. Which reminded me of another another podcast that I listened to talking about the economic costs. So basically in what I was listening to, um, it is, it is, um, Radio Lab's more perfect. It oh, mentioned. <laughs> <laughs> we're NPR, you know, yeah, maybe, maybe they should, um, they should sponsor. Yeah. Co-sponsor us. Absolutely. We, we're such fans, but go ahead, Michael. <laughs> so basically, uh, one of the things that they mentioned was the commerce clause and how the commerce clause was used to basically the commerce clause says that it, it, it that the government is allowed to control commerce across state lines when it affects the economy and so while this was used in economic cases that involved a lot of economy it was also used outside in cases that involved civil rights so for example there was a case where there was a man in one of the southern states i, I don't remember which but um Basically, he owned a restaurant and he said he felt that he was not going to 
um, allow uh, black people into his restaurant. Now, he said that he had the right to refuse service to that person because that's his restaurant. However, because it affects the economy, because the th- his the his um, it, it was explained that his uh, business uh, not only affects it, it, because he 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 gets food from uh, other places. This is an issue that does affect the economy, uh, and 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 it affects people in uh, many different ways that uh, affects the economy of the the United States as a whole. So it was used in this case, the Commerce Clause was used in this case, in the civil rights case, to uh, prevent this person from serving food to uh, a person of color. Now, this was used in actually more than just civil rights. In many cases, this was used, uh, the Commerce Clause was used over and over again until we got to the Violence Against Women Act. So in the, uh, basically there was a case of one a woman named uh, Christy Brancala, who uh, was involved in a rape issue. And the same kind of logic was used. Well, there are economic reasons that, that so this affects me in many ways, uh, including the economy, including the lost time of, of college, that she couldn't continue attending college, that she lost money and, and health issues. And even though the same logic was used, uh, there, Justice Reinquist said no, that this is not gender motivated. This gender motivated crimes are not related to the economy, and therefore, the uh, in this case, the commerce clause is not uh, going to help Mrs. Brancala in this in, in this case. So, while so this why this reminds me so strongly of this is because yes. The economy is affected by uh, domestic violence, but a lot of people don't see it that way. And um, maybe you could talk yeah, about yeah. the different no, ways. Yeah, I, I definitely, I mean, I think in my first episode, I spell out that there's the traditional numbers that are used to calculate the cost of violence against women um, centers around two costs, the healthcare cost and the cost of lost wages to the survivor. Um, but in cases like this, you know, when you're talking about um, multiple people in the family that are affected, not just the survivor, but the children. Right. Um, you know, it doesn't cover the cost of incarceration for the potential abuser, the offender. It doesn't cover, um, so the legal system cost, right? right? The criminal justice system cost, um, assuming that there's a criminal justice involvement. It doesn't cover the cost and opportunity cost to the survivor and the children with regard to lost um, potential in education, in mental health, um, and healthcare costs going forward. Right. Um, that may not be directly linked or attributed to the original abuse or incidents of abuse um, to lost professional opportunities to, you know, pathways that are no longer open to both the children and the survivor. Absolutely. Um, and, and so those costs, you know, then potentially, you know, triple, quadruple, whatever, exponentially increase it. Um, and within the U.S., it's been estimated to be anywhere from $400 million a year to about 600 and 700 
million dollars a year, but just that's just for healthcare and just for lost wages for the survivor. So looking at the total cost of all the other components that I just said, you know, right. especially if there's health ailments that show up as a result of the both the abuse and as a result of the system going through the system and seeking help and not getting support potentially, then it could be tremendous, right? Absolutely, I'm, I'm sure it would be in the trillions. It's it's yeah. not something that that uh, is taken. It should be taken lightly. It's it affects us not only socio socially, but economically in such a big way. And and I feel that not even in this case, in in, in the uh, Violence Against Women Act, you would think that the economy would be a, a strong incentive to 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 stop this, but it, it's. It, it's not in yeah, this case, and, at least. And I think also, like, you know, Barry Goldstein is, we didn't talk too much about ACEs, which right. is adverse childhood experiences. Right. But he's definitely someone who, you know, through his Child Victims Act, um, where he's trying to get it passed, you know, state by state across the country to protect children and expand the statute of limitations for child sexual abuse. He definitely is someone who believes that. We, and I, I do as well, that adverse childhood experiences has also a somatic cost, you know, in terms of healthcare consequences to the future of the child. And That's right. do, you, do you actually, I don't think we've ever discussed on this show the background of ACEs. Have so, you heard about the so ACEs? I, the first time that I heard about ACEs was through Barry when he mentioned it in, in uh, his interview. But I, I mean, what I understand is that it's it, it basically explains how uh, there's so much medical costs to children. No, so yeah. so actually, yes, that's true. But um, I actually want to just share with you the history that I remember of ACEs. Because so ACEs is Adverse Childhood Experiences. And what it describes is based on a series of 10 criteria that children may experience, which includes, you know, physical uh, abuse and neglect, sexual abuse, and then variables in the home, such as being exposed to a parent, you know, who's engaging in domestic violence or who is, you know, is suffering from substance abuse or addiction, being a child of divorce or having a parent who's incarcerated. Those all give you a rating, you know, mm-hmm. on the ACE scale. And the higher your ACE score, mm-hmm. the greater risk you have for certain kinds of ailments as an adult. So oh. ailments including um, heart disease, right. you know, yeah, stress-related disease, cancer, you know, mm-hmm. diabetes, all these things have been co- correlated with high ACE scores as children. Right. And so how ACEs actually came about which I think is very interesting to share with our um, listeners, is that back in 1985, mm-hmm. there was a physician named Vincent Felitti, who was the chief of Kaiser Permanente's preventive medicine department. Okay. And he was conducting a clinical trial on obesity. And what happened was, there were, you know, lots of people that they had screened, and and I don't remember the details. I'll give you just the high level summary, and okay. then we'll we'll find the link and, yeah, and we'll share can, it right yeah, with yeah. our listeners. Absolutely. But but there was a high dropout rate for the obesity clinic, and Felidi Felidi started 
just wondering, like, why are so many people dropping out? Because people weren't dropping out because they were gaining weight. They were dropping out when they were losing weight. So in other words, according to the obesity study, they were successful in what their goal was. Okay. And so long story short, cut, cut to something happened and he started trying to solve the mystery. So I I can't remember exactly how, but he decided to do face-to-face interviews with a couple hundred of the dropouts. So there was tens of thousands of original people in the study. Right. And then he ended up doing face-to-face study uh, interviews. Interviews with the people who dropped out. Yeah. And he found out just by accident from interviewing and, and not planning to ask these questions that there was a cause, there was a common link to the people who had dropped out. Mm -hmm. And the link was childhood incest. And so, yes. And so what happened was these study participants had been sexually abused as children. And somehow eating was kind of like a defense against. Yeah. It was a solution that made them feel better. Mm -hmm. It soothed them. It soothed their anxiety and fear and anger, depression, whatever. Just like a coping mechanism, kind of like alcohol is or, or tobacco. So they chose eating. Yeah. And, um, and what happened was, um, that the obesity solved the problem. And so by losing weight, it triggered sort of an emotional response that made them feel those things that the eating actually solved was a salve towards. Oh, I see. And and so um, by taking away their coping methods, and also for for a lot of people who are sexually abused, becoming sort of eating becomes like a a mask. And and I've heard also that um, it's a way that you think, oh, I'm going to like, be less, less attractive. attractive to right. the, you know, which of course it's not about. You no, know, of course I know yeah. it's about power, but it, yeah. it, this is this is how they feel. So so they so basically the idea was that that you know first one conclusion was that unless you deal with your emotional sort of causes mm-hmm. of your somatic issues, your physical ailments, the physical ailments will always come back. Right. Um, your oh, body isn't ready to be healed in a way. And secondly, you have to, that if you don't deal with it, then your body will continue to sort of respond, you know, and be, and be at risk of adult illnesses. That is fascinating. So that's how the ACEs came about. Yeah. And, and that's, that's the whole point was that, you know, that, that we linked it to family court is that so many people in the system, mainly the judges, the therapists, the custody evaluators, they don't understand the connection between For example, being exposed to domestic violence, they think very often they'll say, oh, well, it happened in the past, or they're only elevating physical violence as something that's, that puts the child at risk, you know, and they don't think they minimize or they dismiss entirely coercive control tactics, you know, which is a form of, which is, if it's enacted, Mm -hmm. it can be something that um, can be measured on the ACEs as well as for ne- as neglect or some of the other, you know, right, factors. Uh, factors. Yeah. yeah. And so it will contribute to a child or the victim, you know, be responding negatively in their body and then causing long-term ailments. Wow. And that, that's something that basically Barry was saying, if we took that into account, then our outcomes would be different. 
Absolutely, because therefore there would be much less, much less of these health issues that we would have to uh, deal with. So yeah. that's great that that um, he puts the he brings light to this. And and so I, that 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 takes us to our last episode in the current series. Not the last episode in Family Court, but just in the most recent series of four, which is episode 11 with Kathleen Russell of the Center for Judicial Excellence. Right. Now, we mentioned her before when we were talking about the players. I think this is the episode where you were able to define all the players in Family Court. And she also brings up the, um, the, the evaluators, the, the... The judges, the forensic custody evaluators, the guardian ad litems. Right. And she also, it's a great episode to, to end the, the small series, the part of the series, because again, she also mentions the whole uh, junk science examples again. Which is PAS. Right. Yeah. She, right. Was, she, was, we're trying not to, she was trying not to give it weight by naming it, but it's basically uh, junk science. Right. Oh, so that's... It's, it's kind of like a good analogy would be the way the Trump administration has been trying to discredit mainstream news media right and calling mainstream news quote unquote fake news right um so that's kind of like how PAS is being used so it's being used as an accusation to discredit the accusations of abuse got it Right, right. So saying that, oh, that bringing that to light is that that's that's sort of a fake news. Right. So that your your abuse allegation is false, and therefore, rather than give it weight, I'm going to say it's fake. And because you're saying you're making up a story that's fake about me, therefore, you're alien. You're untrustworthy as a parent because you're going to not let me have a good me, the alleged abuser, accused abuser, have a relationship with the child. Right. But as Barry said, uh, you know, the best kind of parent is a safe parent. Right. And there's no criteria other than that. Right. Just making sure that the child is, is put into, we're doing what's best for the child as opposed to what's best for the parent. That's, that's, um, that's something that we learned. Well, that I learned. <laughs> you know, what struck me was when Kathleen, in the beginning of our conversation, I remember and I think also because this, was, this I used this in the in the promo for the episode. Mm-hmm. She had stated how in California, some of the um, the uh, sort of misbehaviors, if we want to call it that, by the forensic custody evaluators included custody evaluators recycling reports right. and forgetting to that. change the names in their reports. Right, and then they're just using them over and over again and not being held accountable at all. No. Now, she also mentioned the fact that there was a time where they were going to do uh, an audit of some sort, and right before it, they got rid of all of the all of the evidence, and then shredding. They, were, they, started, they, they shredding. started shredding, and they said, "No, these these papers just happen to not not be related to what the case is about. We just chose, I guess, this time." Sounds familiar, huh? <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> that that uh, yeah. It's it's scary to think that. Things can be done so blatantly, and and th- no one is being held accountable. Well, you know, we we are having this conversation in the aftermath of the Helsinki, <laughs> quote unquote, treason summit. Right. Well, yeah. That's the hashtag. <laughs> treason summit, um, which is that that's awful. It's it's right there in your face, and it just it, it 
So it's happening on a micro level mm -hmm. in families, plays out in the courtrooms and systems, and then on a higher level, macro level, right. in our political environment. And then because of the impact of our you know, political um, policies and processes across the world, it's right. happening globally, right? right it has absolutely. a global impact. It does have a global impact. And... You know, when we think about the solutions, it's 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 not. I, obviously, there are no easy solutions, but even education isn't isn't the isn't like the magic bullet because again, you have this 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 core identity that people have that it, it, it's really hard for them to 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 change. It's they feel threatened by 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 things that make them feel uncomfortable, and sometimes the truth is uncomfortable. It's not. It's not something that's easy, and it seems like some people are more likely to change than others. Well, I mean, I think what what I thought one of the most important projects that Kathleen Russell is working on is the um, U.S. Divorce Child Murder Map. Right. So she and her team are basically, I'm not sure how they're collecting it. Maybe they have some sort of alert, but they're collecting all the data where children... Have murdered been, yeah. that as and and are and there's some sort of custody situation involved, which which shows up in the news as quote unquote murder suicides, but right. they also show up when when those offenders then engage in mass shootings. Right. 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 And so Yeah. That that that's great that we have empirical data that that she's working on in and she said that she was hopefully expanding it to uh, include other statistics, including the women and and yeah and, and, and yeah. Else I think we we need to have a you know aggregate picture of what's happening in these families, um, so we could hold the courts accountable for the decisions that they're making, the bad decisions that they're making that is based on. It's based on implicit bias. It's based on gender bias. It's been from decades of you know research. And basically, just to identify the problem, identify what the issue is and how big of an issue is it. And so I'm I'm, I'm very happy that she's she's doing that. And she also mentioned that it was used in making. I don't know if she said that if she did it for the uh, 2010 where the the event where she spoke to a lot of influential people during the time. I, I don't know if she used it during then, but um, she said that. She, oh, the elected officials the elected when officials, she was yeah. yeah when she went to D.C. for right, when yeah. she went to D.C. Yeah, so I think uh, I, one of the things that she did mention also was that she didn't see too much of change coming from that, or maybe they did listen, but it wasn't it, it, there wasn't any action well, done after I, that. I think it's you know it's a. It's a difficult situation because this is one of those things where so many different parts of our society and culture contribute to reinforcing the problem mm -hmm. and reinforcing the message right. that we have to work on all cylinders and all fronts, right? So Absolutely. she is also working in media advocacy and training, right? Right, And so that's another part that meet the media doesn't get necessarily, they don't get it right when they're reporting. They're not using the right language. They're... And, and then they're not connecting the dots between things that are happening happening in one part of the system or society or culture and another. One of the things she also mentioned was that a lot of these cases aren't being looked at because there is no political backing. So if there is political backing, then the media does get involved. But if it's just an issue that 
has no political backing and it's no matter how serious it's probably not going to be looked at by the media so this is something that um hopefully like you said on all fronts if, if it's being looked at by politicians or somebody is um who has some sort of power can can uh can bring this to light it would be um hopefully shared with more people well you know i think this this brings us to a good place to close our conversation as we look towards the next several episodes on the social construction of identity, of gender, of race, of the intersection of the two, um, of construction of masculinities, and right. and um, we you know we we're going to talk about Tom Digby's episode, but but I think what I kind of have taken away from all of these episodes so far is that. We all need to take a part in in creating a solution and having a and by doing so, just by having awareness, right. you know, about our own implicit bias, about how our opinions and beliefs and attitudes and behaviors are shaped, right, and how there's certain things that we we just have and we 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 function based on these a lot of these false beliefs, a lot of these 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 stereotypes that we think are true and when we take a look at it closely it doesn't it doesn't make sense to to continue operating from that place so i hope that moving forward i can continue to learn about my biases and um and hopefully perform better and and we'll hold each other accountable we'll call each other out absolutely as yeah. we should so so listeners here's a here's a request that we'd like to ask you if you are enjoying our show please um, reach out to us, um, send us some feedback. We'd love to hear what's going well, what you like to hear more of, less of. We'd like to hear about the formats, the three formats that, that we have introduced, which is the interview format with advocates and policymakers and practitioners. We've also introduced a survivor series format featuring just stories of survivors and of course, Michael and, my, and I, we have the conversations of reflections looking back um, at the episode. So if you'd like to suggest a future guest, if you'd like to be on our show, if you'd like to come and participate in the reflection conversation, please reach out to us. Uh, we'd love to hear from you. And thanks for listening. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Engendered. The show is sponsored by CanDoIt. The mission of CanDoIt is to connect human service providers with the resources they need to empower their clients to be safe, healthy, housed, educated, employed, advised, and secure. CanDoIt helps to bridge the service gap and can be found at kanduit.com. CanDoIt. I'd love to get your feedback and hear any questions or suggestions you may have for the show please email us at engenderedpodcast at gmail.com with your questions. Until next time, I'm your host, Terry Yuan. Thank you.